0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, Episode 69. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. On today's show, we talk about digital field site recording again. It, like drones, is a rapidly changing space, but we have requirements and suggestions. Let's get to it. All right, Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. How you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. So we're uh, we're both probably a little crazy right now. We're actually... I didn't even look to see what day this comes out. I have no idea what even day it is today, but... Uh, might be our last of the season, of the uh, year, right? I'm sure it's our last recording of the year, yeah. And I think this comes out next week. And for those of you listening either in the future or whatever, we're recording this like five days before Christmas 2017. So, you know, everybody's a little crazy, but... Uh, I figured since, you know, it's pretty much Christmas for everybody that celebrates that and, you know, presents or gift giving and things like that, that we would try to, um, we would try to gift the archeological, uh, archaeotech audience one more time talking about field site recording forms. I don't know how long, how many times this has been mentioned on the architect podcast, but if we were keeping track of these things.
0: Not enough, however many times. It hasn't been enough yet.
1: <sighs> well, I mean, the simple fact that, there isn't something you can point to, like when I say, are you going to record submeter coordinates and you say yes, and I say, what are you going to use? You're probably going to say a Trimble, right? You're probably going to say Trimble mm-hmm. as the brand name, even though other things do it, you're going to say Trimble. It's our go-to device for doing that. But if I were to say, what are you going to use to record your site with your field site forms and your field site data with that's not GPS related, what are you going to use to record that? You asked a hundred people and you're going to get a hundred different answers. Well, no, no you're going to probably get 10 different answers, but 90 of them will be paper. <laughs> so,
0: and nine of the 10 will yeah. be mm, problematic in the extreme, I think.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. And I think I want to get um, just, you know, this. We, we've got some, some ideas and some things we want to talk about on this show, but just because you said that, I think I want to get some of the really problematic things out of the way right away because I ran a poll and I really should have pulled those results up um, had I thought about this. But I ran a poll on the Archeo Field Text Group on Facebook uh, about a month ago, I guess. And I said, what are you currently using in the field for digital field site recording? Not what have you used in the past? Like, what are you using today? If you were to go do a project right now, what are you using? And the number one answer of probably about 30 answers, I think uh was fillable pdfs really and we've talked yeah we've talked about fillable pdfs before now two things i got to say about that one i totally applaud people that even first figure out how to make a fillable pdf mm-hmm. and second said they they thought far enough ahead and said you know what i need to be recording digitally and this is the only thing i can think of to do right now it's i feel like the tech industry has failed them in not giving a better solution, but I applaud them for at least not using paper and thinking this is the this is a good solution it 's still a paper paradigm it is it is um, it it cuts out a step of Well, it cuts out the, it's still, if you're looking at just efficiency and you're not looking at data, um, because those are kind of two sides of the coin that we need Mm -hmm. to look at here. We need to look at efficiency and we need to look at data. You know, what are we going to do with these things? If all you're concerned with is efficiency and reducing your time that it takes you to finish this project and thereby increasing your profit margin, because if we're talking about CRM, then that's what we're talking about, um, then... A fillable PDF is actually not a terrible solution because it almost completely eliminates the office work of typing up a site form into a Word document. If you're typing up that site form into a fillable PDF and that's 95% done when you leave the field, I say 95% because there's always error checking and things like that once you get back in the office, but there might be a few minutes per site record, but there's not a few hours per site record typing it up if you're using a fillable PDF. Now that's assuming your PDF is robust enough that, you know, if you have 25 pages of text, it can handle that. They're usually not, which is one of the big problems with fillable PDFs. But um, if you've just got some, you know, blanks to fill in, maybe you're just using fillable PDFs for your like inventories or something like that. And it's just check marks or, you know, counting up something or uh, something like that. But if you're doing variable types of descriptions, fillable PDFs are going to be an issue. Um, So, that's that's the issue there with efficiency. It might save you some time. It will save you some time if you've got an average site that doesn't take a lot of variability and you can fill it all out in the field and you're just error checking in the office. But then the other side of that coin is data. And that's how we're going to frame this conversation today. Yeah. What do you mean by data? Well, what I mean by data is the, the things you type into a fillable PDF are not actually data in most cases. You can't do anything with it. You might as well be writing it on a sheet of paper. But you can't take the, you can't take the data in a fillable PDF, extract that into like a table, put it into a GIS or put it into a spreadsheet or a database, and then do things with it. You know, you can't, um, you can't analyze that data in any way. A fillable PDF is basically no better than paper when it comes to its data potential, um, mm-hmm. because. Yeah, go
0: ahead. yeah. Sorry. I, I, I'm going to throw out then a, uh, a distinction then between uh, the, the, the text that you enter into a fillable PDF is basically text. And we have to distinguish mm-hmm. between text, even if it's entered digitally and data,
1: even if it's textual data. Does that make sense? Right. That does make sense. Yeah. So when I think data, I guess I think converting I I guess if I'm saying this right and correct me if I'm wrong, I think I'm, I think I'm meaning an easy conversion of the text that you're entering in the field, no matter how you're doing it and converting that into data, because you can collect uh, paper information in the field. Obviously people have done it for uh, decades. You collect information on paper, you translate that to a spreadsheet or something. Now you've, now you've created what I call data, because data is something mm. that you can do something with. You can store that, you can sort it, you can create tables, you can create pie charts, you can create all the fun graphics. You can do stuff with it, but until you get it into a format where you can do something with it, it becomes, you know, uh, it's 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 not very useful. So I don't I don't really consider it. I guess it's still data in a strict technical sense of the word, but it's not usable data.
0: <laughs> well, what you're missing is um, is what I, a term I use all the time here, pretty much daily. At my work is uh, structured data, and it's the structure that becomes the important part. I mean, you might have a beautiful description of an object, uh, mm-hmm. but if that description isn't structured in a particular way, it's just a string of letters and words that a human has to go and pull apart in order to do anything with. But if it's it's structured in a proper way so that you can, you know, if it's those cells in that spreadsheet, uh, each cell means something. It's that ancillary meaning, that extra meaning about where it is, how it's positioned in relation to other, uh, what column it is. You know, is that the width Mm -hmm. column or the height column? You know, something very simple that you can understand. That means something. Right, so the structure, mm-hmm. uh, I think, is where it really changes between just text and data, and that's the part that I think that we have to really focus on.
1: Yeah, and that that's an excellent distinction to make, um, and that's where fillable PDFs fail because when you enter information into the fillable PDF, sure, there's structure to where that is, but the only thing that can read that is a PDF reader. Right. <laughs> you can't get it out once you do once you get once you get it to uh, you know, to the computer, off your tablet, or whatever you're doing. It's still just a fillable PDF. There's no way to extract the individual things from those fields and have those field type tags or whatever attached to those pieces of information. Then it would become data if you could actually do Mm -hmm. that. Maybe something like that does exist at a high end form, but I'm willing to bet most people using fillable PDFs are not considering that or doing that yeah probably not
0: they're probably generally just yeah. flat fields kind of not unlike typing in you know your name in uh, on the line in place of the line on, on a uh, word document now we've all received word documents mm-hmm. you have to fill out for different like permission slips if you're if your' parent excuse me or for for different medical forms who knows what um, that then you're supposed right. to go print out but you you fill out in the right slot and so there's a little bit of structure to it in terms of the formatting but you, you can't pull that out in a meaningful sense now pdf uh the fillable pdfs at least when they started out there was an intent to have a back end to it you know a web deliverable back end so you know field a would be first name and that would go to some mm-hmm. database someplace that filled out the first name and field b would be last name and that would go to that same database in the last name mm. too. um I don't see people doing that. I certainly wouldn't be doing that if um, if I had a PDF, if I had a, a site form that I had to convert to a digital format. And the easiest right. way to do that was to, to scan that PDF and then make fields on top of the, uh, the right areas to fill out um i'm probably not going to go through all the effort to set up a server (laughs) that links into that so that you know in a database at the back end of the server so that you can fill out that and then submit the form electronically to the back end i mean there's certainly easier Mm -hmm. solutions to that same set of problems nowadays
1: yeah and i think i think the slight evolution of that um, is something else we have in our notes which would be something like a web-based form like google forms Um, Mm -hmm. Because a, a Google form, uh, for anybody that's ever set one of those up, if you're just seeking information and you set up this Google form, um, you can uh, have people fill that out. And then the product that you get from that is actually a spreadsheet of the information. The, the, you know, the fields that you have on the form, the questions or whatever, are the columns across the top. And then each person that answers is a row. So, you know, Chris Webster, row one, here's all his answers to the things across the top. And that's data. That's something you can do something with. And even in Google, you can take that form and then create quick pie charts and graphs and whatever you want from that. That's that's data right there. Right. But the whole problem with a Google form, um, aside from security and that, you know, unless you're really careful with Google, uh, all someone needs is the link to, to really get all that data. Um, in a lot of cases, you have to, mm-hmm. there's obviously ways to secure that, but they're not ways that people really understand or use a lot of times. So um, I never put anything really sensitive in a Google form, uh, quite frankly. And the other issue is, of course, if you happen to be using Google Forms in the field, uh, I'm not aware. Maybe you can on an Android-based tablet, but I'm not aware of the fact that you can use them offline. I don't know if you could to save information because I don't think it saves information locally. I think it saves it to Google servers if you create a form, you answer it, then you create a new form. Like if you're just doing an inventory type of thing or maybe you do have a full site form on there or something like that. I don't think I don't think you can use them without internet service. So if you're in some place like pretty much all of the West Coast, out in the field, the western half of the United States, the Intermountain region, you're not going to have cell service out in the field in a lot of cases, and I'm not sure you can use a Google Form on any type of tablet in that case. Do you know about any of that, Paul? No, I don't. I
0: know that that uh,
1: Google Docs yeah.
0: and Google Sheets you definitely can use in an offline, on, uh, excuse me, in an offline mode. Uh, uh-huh. The the forms I haven't actually tested that, so I don't know. It would be fantastic yeah. if you could. But you know, another thing with the forms, Google Forms in particular, and I'm sure there are other similar sorts of products out there, is that your form is one form. Right. Say you've mm-hmm. got a, a sheet. You know, on your project, you've got one sheet for each artifact that you're finding. Right. You wouldn't have that option. You would have the one sheet. <laughs> you would have to then yeah, go and yeah. make another whole sheet to fill out object two, and another whole sheet to fill out object three. So even if it is right. usable in an offline form, it's not geared toward that. It's geared towards mm-hmm. getting survey data, you know, uh, about an individual, about things that they're doing, that sort of thing. It's not. It's not about doing you know twenty object forms because that, those are the twenty mm-hmm. objects that you found on on a particular site. Um, so, you know, it's yeah. maybe not the best solution in and of itself, even if it can do off- uh, offline mode. Uh, but right. that, that offline online distinction is another important part that we're looking at here. Because again, I've mentioned this before, is that we're used to being online all the time at home, at work, mm-hmm. uh, and most of the software developers are similarly used to being online most, if not all the time. Uh, But we as archaeologists have to deal with those cases where we're offline and have to be able to deal with intelligently having our forms and our resources, whatever else available offline, and then being able to sync it back up to some centralized repository or server.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So again, Google Forms, I don't know that that fits the bill for that, but uh, there definitely is a space there. It's not just archaeologists. I'm sure anybody that does any kind of field work uh, has the same sort of sets of problems.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they do. Um, and and if we're talking about the the two sides of the coin here, usable like raw data for other things and efficiency. Um I feel like Google Forms if you were to if you were to able to use those in the field and it did work the way we say we wanted to work that it, it kind of ticks both those boxes in a way it's not very convenient it's a little clunky but it does tick both those boxes the one box the third one we'll introduce which is security um as Paul mentioned and as I mentioned it's not it's not like Uber secure in <laughs> the way that you're going <laughs> to yeah. use it so um so that so the next logical question and I I feel like 14 minutes into this podcast, we should explain what the hell this show is about. um, Because... What, what I'm trying to cover here is is this is really for people who, um, well, two types of people, people who want to record digitally in the field, and there isn't an off-the-shelf solution for you right now. Um, the people that are like, how do I do this? Where do I go? I'm, I, I feel like we're trying to go through the thought process that someone would naturally have. You know, they'd think about mm-hmm. a fillable PDF. They might think of Google Forms. Um, I think the next thing that people would think about, because I did see this as an answer on the poll, and I've... I know people that are actually doing this in the field right now, um, which is, uh, and this is a logical solution too, at least here in Nevada is to just use a word document in the field, whether that's on some sort of robust. I know, I know um, whether that's on some (laughs) sort of like field computer uh, or some sort of tablet or something like that. That's running word. I've seen people do that. And that is, I can't fault people for that. That is a logical solution because what we do typically here in Nevada and I know in California, is you, you have your printout of the actual site form. It's just a printout of the Word document or PDF that the state issues, basically. You write on that, and then you go back to the office, you open up that same Word document, and you type everything into it. So it would be logical for someone to think, well, if I just brought that Word document in the field, I could avoid the paper step and type right into it. But again... We're going to have the same problems as a fillable PDF, and except we're going to have more problems. Um, first off, it's not data. You're typing into, you're typing your words next to other words that are the same words on the page. It's just words on a page. You can't do anything with it once you get it in there. Maybe you're not concerned with that. Okay. Um, it is relatively secure if it's just a Word document locked on your tablet. Um, you know, if as long as you keep all that in house. So there's that. Yeah, it's not shared across the web. Right, exactly. Um, so if you upload that at the end of the day or something to your servers, then you're probably okay. Uh, but it's not it's not super efficient. Uh, and you might think it is because you're cutting out that step and you're just typing it into a Word document. But if anybody's ever tried to type anything into a Word document and they didn't have like invisible characters turned on and they hit enter key and it all hell broke loose and they don't know what the hell is going on, try doing that in the field, in a wind, when you've got your crew chief saying, are you done yet? And you just... Destroyed the formatting on this Word document, and it all it all went to hell. Um, that that is a pure hell in itself, which which actually brings up another problem that all of these things we've talked about are have uh, together. Which is when we go in the field, uh, a crew of four typically here in the West, we'll have features to record, artifacts to record, site information to record, just basic site information, and then GIS information. That's typically why we have a four person crew. The crew chief will hand out the paperwork for those different things, unless people have the, the blank ones with them. You know, you'll, you'll have artifact logs, you'll have feature forms, and you'll have the site forms for the basic site information. And each person does their part. And then in the office, all that gets synthesized into a single site record document. Well, the biggest problem with using something like a Word document as your site form and things like that is now you're taking the three or four different Word documents or pieces of documents, and then you're trying to put all those together. If people all have their own tablets and they're working on individual pieces, same thing with a PDF, same thing with a Google form, unless you really broke everything up into its individual constituent parts, and you could put it all back together again, and not confuse one site for the next, then, you know, then you're fine. But that's really difficult to do. And that's where that's where databases come in. Um, right. Databases are, are pretty much the answer to that problem.
0: <laughs> well, I'm gonna, before we move on to databases, maybe we can do that after the break. Uh, I would say that w- the reason why I, <laughs> when you said Word documents, is because uh, you know, a PDF, at least, is, uh, 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 it follows very closely a, a paper paradigm, right? So you've got the PDF, which mm-hmm. is, the the card that you have to fill out, the form that you have to fill out, and what you fill out on it is what you're writing there in pencil or pen on top of that form, right? So it's kind of a layered yeah. metaphor. Uh, Word document, you're it actually it, it looks like it's paper, right? You're going to print this out at yeah. the end, presumably, uh, but you're actually inserting the text into it, right? So it's so easy to then to screw up the formatting. Uh, which is the real advantage more so than anything else of having paper is that you can really strictly control the format of the display and the of the information that's on it. Uh, and as soon mm-hmm. as you go to a Word document, you kind of have the illusion of that. And that illusion can be burst, you know, just by the slightest you know you accidentally hit tab you accidentally hit return you know there's some your your field that you have to fill in you've got a little more data that can fit into that that line that they gave you and it pushes the next line down and everything goes to hell um, mm-hmm. so it, it's for me it's the worst of all worlds um, every year we get a <laughs> uh, we get a document over here from our lower school where they have all the teachers and the classrooms and the new teachers and everybody's indicated it's all a word document everybody's indicated you know by a little asterisk or a little plus or a little something next to their name to indicate that they're they're new or they've changed what room they're teaching in and it's yeah. just a horrible document and <laughs> i i don't even have word on my on my main computer because i i i Hate that yeah, program. Yeah. Um, I know. And so I open it up in LibreOffice, and then the formatting screws up. And so they, they've spent a lot of time to make sure that it shows up just on one page. And I open it up, and it goes to the second page. Mm-hmm. And I cringe every year when I get this. I'm just like, you know, why just? Why don't you just send me an Excel file? If you really want to use Microsoft products, that's fine. Send me an Excel file with everybody's name, the room that they're in, and, and another field that says new person or changed room. You know, <laughs> and, and I'll have it as right. data. Uh, but um, but yeah, that 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 use of Word documents for collecting data is just is the worst possible way of going about it, I think. So if any of our Absolutely. listeners are thinking about doing it, please save yourself the problem. Print that Word document as a PDF and turn that into a fillable PDF <laughs> as the very minimum, because at least you're doing everybody else's service, including yourself, when it comes time to assemble those to put into a report.
1: I mean, it's, it's not very user friendly, but at the very least, type into an Excel document, Ugh. you know, just so create better. the data, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that, but people don't do that because it's not pretty. You know, well, it's not that it's not pretty, but it's not. It really isn't user friendly if you're trying to find a certain column and entry and where do I type this in? And it's just a pain in the ass. We, we're visual people, right? We'd like to see yeah. things laid out in a visual way. So, well, um, a big part of that, I think,
0: um, and yeah, you know, I've definitely was talking about this here, uh, and we'll get to this after the break. As you said, uh, database-driven programs. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that we as archaeologists and anybody that does any kind of data collection has to think about the difference between data in and data out. And right. that word document, that PDF, those can be great for data out. They're terrible for data in. and we have to make that that sort of distinction. And, uh, mm-hmm. and if you think about that early enough in your project, in your in your uh, in the design of your research, uh, you'll avoid a lot of headaches down the road.
1: Indeed, yeah. All right. Well, let's take our break uh, and then we'll come back and talk about databases um, on this break. You will hear about the members program. We've had a couple new members in the last week or so from this recording. Uh, thanks for that. I know all the support helps. Uh, so check it out. ArcPodnet.com forward slash members. We're adding new content to the member site. Um, you would have heard this podcast probably about a week early if I if I'm on my stuff and I and I get it done on time. Um So the minute I get them edited and error checked, they go up on the members only site and then they release to the public on the date that they normally release. Um, So as soon as I can get them out, you have access to it if that's an important thing to you. Uh, And that's not just this show. That's all the shows. So, all right. Well, listen to this ad about our members uh, only site. And it's uh, I think it's about a minute long. So you have time to go over the website and uh, sign up (laughs) while you're listening (laughs) to it. So that's great. Um, Thanks for that. And uh, we'll be back in just a second. All right.
0: This network is supported by our listeners. members.
1: Okay, welcome back to episode 69. And we are talking about digital field site recording. And uh, this episode is for all those people that want to do this, but don't really know what they're looking for. I'm trying to go through this order of progression from the things you might think of to the things you probably should be looking at. And also, this is really handy for anybody out there that has app development uh, chops and and can maybe produce something like this, because as we'll find out near the end of this segment, there aren't a whole lot of options out there. Um, and as we said at the beginning of the last segment, if you were to ask a bunch of people, there isn't a standard answer for for the answer to this question. I don't think that one company needs to monopolize the, the industry, but... There, that isn't even an option right now. Nobody's even remotely, you know, carving out a tiny little niche of the industry right now. So, but we'll get into that later. Um, when we ended the last segment, we were getting into really the culmination of all these different technologies and what you really should be looking at, which is a database application and databases. Uh, I'll admit for even myself, you know, back when I was like in grad school, I didn't have a lot of experience with databases and I met a guy who was at the grad school uh, at the University of Georgia and he was like a database architect and he was showing us this background, back end of a database, like the relational tables and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. my mind was just blown. Like I'd never seen anything like that before. (laughs) I had no idea (laughs) what I was even looking at, all the lines connecting everything. And it was a total mess, Um, but he understood it. And I know way more about databases now than I did back then. I think I'd still probably struggle with putting together a nice, efficient one. Um, but I think I would, I don't think I'd do too bad, quite frankly. But you really got to pay attention to how the thing is built because it'll run slowly or crash when you're trying to access data from the database. So, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, Basically, what we're talking about here, though, is using something with uh, with relational tables, and really that just means that tables relate to each other, I mean, really to break that down, and and having that as your underlying architecture. And the, the biggest reason for that is flexibility. Um, you want to be able to displace different things on your screen, and the way to do that is to be able to call them up from tables that are stored within your database. And then not only that, but as you record new data, those are stored in tables that the database creates, right? The database creates these tables that you store your new data in or the data that you're recording. And then the interface that you're using, the user interface, the UI or GUI, some people call it the graphical user interface, is the is the visual pleasing expression of the database basically right. that's the layer on top that allows you to not have to look at all the tables and lines <laughs> <laughs> to to make, to make it simple
0: so let me let me try to uh, give you a uh, uh, well not exactly a real world example but one that anybody can can understand is that if you have a, a well constructed database and we're talking about relational da- databases here I'm not talking about noSQL databases which I'm still trying to get my brain around um, <laughs> Say you have a table that has quadrants, you know, your excavation quads, mm-hmm. and you've got another table that has artifacts. And the quadrants table has, at a minimum, the dimensions, you know, the the, the, the boundaries of the uh, the quadrant that you're excavating. And the artifacts have their own locations, right? They're, they're, they're 3D mm-hmm. locations in space. You could very easily, in a uh, relational database, ask, the 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 table that's the database to say hey find me all artifacts that are in this particular uh, area and so you could show then which quads match that or you know you can break it down by different depending what kinds of data you've collected and that's again gets back to the thing of data in data out but you can break it down you can slice and dice it in different ways give me all the pot shirts give me mm-hmm. all the figurines give me everything metal however you want to categorize it, depending on the variabilities of your site, and and be able to look across diagonally and you know vertically and horizontally and slice and dice all that data that you've collected all those little bits of information and be able to pull out stuff that's hopefully meaningful i mean really really because we as archaeologists are very uh, are very visually focused uh it really mm-hmm. hits the run- hits the ground running when you start mixing that in with the gis and then you can have a have databases behind your GIS, uh, so that you can display any of these different variables or multiples of different variables, you know, you know, give me all the, I don't know, the, the metal objects that are figurines across the site and display it there. So you, you, you get, uh, mm-hmm. this way of like querying, which is a big part of SQL, sorry let me back up a little bit here so <laughs> relational databases most of them use an interface which is called structured query language SQL it's a very simple programming language developed in the 1970s I believe and it's very mathematical and it's as soon as you start it starts to click with you how to program in it uh, you can use it with different kinds of database backends and then you can you, you know you can transfer it that the difference between you know Postgres and Oracle and MySQL uh, are really just different differences of dialect. So, you know, you learn one, Mm -hmm. you can kind of tweak it a little bit and and rewrite the query for something else. But you you learn ways of then interrogating your data and cross-cutting it, asking all these strange little questions and then one question leads to another and you can slice it a different way and slice it a different way but you're only ever able to do that if you first entered your data into that database in a nice structured sensible way and so that's where i get really you know that's why i'm so adamant about not using that word document uh, but would much rather have a nice front end uh, be it a web browser mm-hmm. interface, be it uh, tap forms, be it Codify, be it Wildnotes, be it anything else, FileMaker uh, that structures your data as it goes in. So that way you can pull it out uh, in really interesting and meaningful formats.
1: And that is the key, you know, be able to enter it. In an easy way, and be able to extract the information in an easy way, and then to store it so that other people can do it. You Absolutely. know, that's that's the nice thing about a database. Yeah, is you know, as scientists, you're always trying to uh, create something that is reproducible. That's the hallmark of good science, right? Somebody, somebody should be able to look at your data, at uh, your raw data, and produce similar results. Well you know, one of the best ways to be able to do that is to store raw data. If I go to look up a, a site at the BLM right now and I go back and I find the original CD that's buried in with the report in this BLM file cabinet, I'm more than likely not going to see any true data on that CD. What I'm gonna see is a PDF of the uh, of the report. I'm gonna see PDFs of all the site records, and I'm gonna see the photographs, and I'm gonna see the GIS information the gis files but it's basically just the shape files that represent the site you know the points lines Mm -hmm. and polylines but not real data so um if you collect that information Uh, as data then you can link your database once you get all this information out of your tablets you can link that database with your gis and then now when somebody opens up your gis for your report and they click on that artifact they actually see the data that you collected uh with that artifact or they see the data you collected with that feature you know the description the whatever whatever you fields you set up that you want them to see they should be able to see all that and that's really just linking one to the other and that's not that hard you know that's that's actually kind of easy that gis is designed to be able to link to a database. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. um, yeah, and that's the, that's the greatest thing about it. Um, and the other things, the, the other thing a data, t- uh, a database gives you is when you have tables that are talking to each other, this relational style tables, you, you often have, and Paul, I'll, I'll get the term wrong here. And maybe, you know um, what I'm trying to get at here, but there's usually, I think it's like a key field or something like that. The field that links those two tables together, yep. um, there's something that gets you from one field, one table to the next. Right. um, well, that term, that term can be something related to... Now, if you're really going to build a database and you got some crazy database architects out there, they'll have their own things that, that help all these go together. But where this comes in handy is, let's say that term is just the site number that you created, okay? That's the field. And the field is probably site number, and then the site number is whatever you typed in, and that links it to the other tables. Well, if you have that, and you've got four tablets out in the field, and you say, you record artifacts, you record features, you record site description... And, and you record whatever else there is, and you all use the same site number to start with, and all your tables have the same site number at the top of it, then once you bring this all back together in the office, your database ought to be able to put all that together pretty easily and bring all that stuff back into one site because they're using that key... That key cell in the table, uh, that key line in the table or key row to be able to link everything back together. And then you can work on export depending on what you're doing. You can export that into into your GIS. You can export that into however you're creating the final, you know, Word style looking PDF. Um, of your site form that the agencies require. So I'm looking forward to a day when the agencies don't actually require PDFs of forms anymore. They just require data. <laughs> <laughs> they just require the database because there really is no point in giving them the the site form anymore. It's really a holdover from, from just typing up site forms, right? I mean, there's no reason for them to have the PDF of that. It really should just be data and then give them the report. Um, if you want to pull up the site form, well, that should be in an interface that they have either at the office or that's online. And whatever interface you're using pulls the data of that site into whatever graphical user interface you want to use, whether it's a map and you're looking at individual things or you really do want to see it laid out as a site form or something like that. But we need to think beyond the paper and... Um, and stop limiting ourselves to that format. That's one thing I did when I was consulting with Codify is I was trying to get us to think beyond the paper because a lot of solutions up until, well, now, quite frankly, are what I was calling paper on glass. It's really just the paper version. That's what a fillable PDF is. It's paper on glass. Absolutely. It's the paper version on glass. But we have, uh, you know billions of dollars behind this technology from for whether it's an Apple tablet or a Samsung tablet it doesn't matter there's billions of t- dollars behind these technologies and yet we're still trying to put a fillable pdf on there let's think beyond that beyond the interface and figure out the best way to actually most efficiently record stuff in the field what would that look like if you had an unlimited you know design aesthetic and you didn't have to constrain yourself to the paper you just have You know, the best way I was thinking about it is I would cut up a site form and and like physically cut up the paper and just lay the fields in front of me and say, how would I want to see these filled out if I'm, you know, laid out if I'm actually just doing this in the field? You know, how would I want to see that laid out in front of me on a tablet if I didn't need it to be a sheet of paper? What would I want that to look like? And think beyond two dimensions too, you know, think three-dimensional even with your interface, you know, I'm digging down into the site. Why not have that be a three dimensional representation? We were thinking about all kinds of crazy stuff that never came into fruition, but that's what you have to think with this new technology is let's let's get ourselves away from the paper and into something like that. So,
0: yeah, and as long as, as you know, as long as you're collecting those those data in a, in a structured format, you you really can think multidimensionally. It doesn't just have to be three dimensions. Think the fourth dimension, time. I mean, we are sure. archaeologists; we deal with time all the time. Uh, nope. Mm-hmm. Joe meant there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we deal with time all the time, and uh, and you know we think in in the fourth dimension frequently. It's it's really important. Do, do I think that this is pre Islamic? Do I think it's Islamic? That matters as to how I'm going to interpret right. this site. Maybe more, maybe less, depending on what the yeah. object is, depending on what my my research questions are. But it, it it's a critical part of what we're discussing here. Um, I'm going to add before we mm-hmm. uh, before we talk about some of the, the the possibilities that we can open up is that. Uh, that when we're dealing with database pro, database based programs, we also get two really big features that are critically important to our later research. Um, that you don't get through something like a fillable PDF, and you definitely don't get through a Word document, and you absolutely don't get on paper. And this is a huge advantage, is you get data integrity, and you can also get standardization. And what I mean by that data integrity, we've all been familiar with, you know, you fill out a form on the web, and it asks for an email address, and you can't hit go until you've put a, an actual, you know, <laughs> Paul at com, and you've got that at, I didn't accidentally, you know, hit the exclamation mark there. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, it won't let you go. That's data integrity. It makes sure that, that what you're putting into it. It asks for a, a dimension. You know, what's the what's What are the linear dimensions of an object? And you put in twenty-three A, and it says, no, that's not actually a linear dimension. It's like, oh yeah, twenty-three because it's twenty-three centimeters. You know, something like that. You right. know, you can check for that sort of stuff when you're dealing with data as data. Um, and then standardization, and that gets partially to what you 're talking about with the um with the 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 key fields in the databases so you know basically what you can do is you 'll have table a and table b and let 's say that um instead of having to write down the site name you know. We're working in mm-hmm. a part of the world where we've got sites, let's say, I mean, site name sites, uh, instead of having to write down the site name and potentially having somebody misspell it, you just pick it off a list and it's site four, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but they don't have to know that it's Site 4. That's in the back end. The computers can take care of knowing that it's Site 4, knowing that it's Site you know 3004. It doesn't matter. Um, the, the site, right. it gives you the name that you can read, and you can pick the right one off the list. And so that that's the standardization part, you know? So you and I both, uh, both go out in the field, and we both fill out our paper forms, and you're a good speller, and I'm a bad speller, and you spell the name right, and I spell it wrong, and somebody else takes it. We hire some temp to... You you know type in all our paper forms and they just do a verbatim and now if you want to search for you know the name of the site they'll only get the ones that you spelled because you spelled correctly that you filled out that you spelled correctly and they'll get all the ones that I did won't show up because I, I misspelled them consistently well you can standardize that through database collection uh, through collection of data with a database backend by presenting just the right answers to the data collectors you know the right possible answers you know so no. Nobody's going to do a typo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is an enormous benefit going forward. So uh, so I just wanted to put those two things out, the data integrity and the standardization. And they're linked. You know, They're joined at the hips, um, but they're really important for the data back out. They, they, they improve the data in so that the data out is also improved.
1: Mm-hmm. That's an excellent point, too, because uh, that's one of the things we were working on at Codify was creating kind of a standard, not a standard site form for the United States, so I don't want people to freak out. They love their site forms and their particular layouts Mm -hmm. uh, in different states. However, a standard input method for sites, um, and the way you do that is with a relational database. So if I tell the database I'm working in Nevada, or I tell the database I'm working in California, the tables that the front end I record with, records into, are for those particular uh, state system so when I export as those site forms they look like they're supposed to look um, but the, the simple fact is you can have the same uh, type of field on 50 different site forms from 50 different states it's the same data that you're entering in but they all call it something different mm-hmm. so you know, having that standard entry format um, is a way to go. Now, that's how we were trying to think at Codify, and I don't know if they're still doing that because I've been with them since May, um, so I don't know if they're still doing that. However, DINA, the Digital Index of North American Archaeology, they are doing sort of the same thing, but but the other direction. Um, they're standardizing the way information comes to them, basically. So they're they're creating a database of existing things, and instead of having everybody enter something into a standard format. As they, because that's not what they're doing. Nobody's entering information into DINA like that. DINA is going to different states and getting their site information. They'll take a look at one of their site forms and say, okay, this field on your form maps to this place in our database. This one maps to this place. So that once they figure out that mapping, they can suck in a state's entire database into theirs. And now it's in their standardized database. And that's, an, again, like you said, another powerful feature of databases is to be able to have standardization like that, different terms that mean the same thing in the same table. So when somebody queries it, no matter where they're from, they get the same information and that's what they're trying to do. So with Codify, it was, we were trying to Put everything in in a standard way, and with Dina, they're trying to accept everything in a standard way. If yeah. that makes any no, it sense, totally
0: makes sense. And then there's also the other bit is that you know, if especially uh, those of us who work in the old world, I don't know how much it applies in the new world, but I'm sure it applies at you know quite a bit as well. Uh, multiple different spellings for things, and multiple different languages mm-hmm. and texts. For, for let's say, yeah. site names, right? So I work oh, in yeah. the Middle East, so I might have a French transliteration and English transliteration. I uh, definitely have the, the local Arabic spelling of a site. And all of those, you know, if people were to write them in just as text, um, they, uh, th- there's no correlating between them. You know, you would have to know mm-hmm. that the the French sh is ch, and the English is sh, and actually the Germans, because they're being very pedantic about it, are doing it as an s. Hot check, you know. So, um, <laughs> right. And good for them, <laughs> you know. And then the locals yeah, yeah. are writing it with the sheen character, which is in a totally different script, you know. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have a, the ability then, if you 're dealing with data as data of doing translation tables too, you know so I could reference yeah. a site by its id and we can spit it out the other end in the Arabic or the German or the French or the English spellings like that mm-hmm. and it doesn 't matter the the recipient then can see it in their own best format as well, um, so you know right. the, the, there 's so many opportunities to hear that i don 't see any downside at all uh to any archaeologist ever you know i don't see any downside that would prevent <laughs> any archaeologist from going to a database driven system um the only mm-hmm. one is that that you know it's quicker to convert your existing word documents Word documents that you can put on your tablet, or if you go a little bit farther, to turn it into a PDF with fillable fields. But beyond that, you're really, really hampering yourself uh, down the line when it comes to data analysis. And I think we've, uh, as a field, turned the corner now. I think we're we're far enough along that we Mm -hmm. really have to think uh, digital first for all its major advantages.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. All right. Well, we are going to go a little long on this segment um, because uh, I mean I, I only need a few minutes for my app of the day, so I think we can yeah, cut into too. that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, because one of the things I you know we're not going to get to everything we want to talk about here, but one of the things I do want to mention uh, right here near the end is. What's what's available for you to use now? Um, so if you've come this far, um, you know what's available now. And I will say there are a number of companies out there that are really trying to do the right thing here. They know that this is a problem. They're trying to solve it, and I applaud them for that. And I wish that there was a solution for them so they didn't have to spend, you know, create a position for app developer. I mean, how many? How many companies now have like an app developer on staff? Really, it's not even an app developer. More likely, it's a it's a a person who has those skills, and now that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that used to be the GIS department. I knew people who would study GIS and then they do a little bit in the department and now they're part of the GIS department and they're not archaeologists anymore. Um, I've seen that happen organically a number of times, but I think that's happening with app development now. You can learn that on the side and then you're like, oh, you know, hey, we should be doing this and I'm going to kind of do this on the side and then it kind of becomes your job with that company. A lot of big companies are trying to solve their own problems and they're the ones that are, I don't want to say doing it right, but probably doing it for a longer term sustainable way is they're, they're building a database and then they're building a way to interface that database in the field. Now, that's the nice thing about FileMaker. If you're using FileMaker, you can use FileMaker Go on a tablet, uh, on an Apple tablet, an, I, uh, uh, an iPad, and FileMaker Go is the graphical interface to the database that you're using, okay? So uh, that's actually how Codify works. Uh, code, and no, that's not a secret to anybody. Uh, Michael will show you the back end if you ask him. Um, Codify is built on FileMaker, and the interface that you see is the graphical interface that FileMaker uh, allows you to do. And then you download that FileMaker Go app, you access you know, the database. And a lot of people are doing that, and a lot of programs, a lot of... A lot of academic stuff across the country. You know, they all kind of go to FileMaker because it's a really good, easy-to-use database. And then they build this interface on the front end for them to use. So... So that's what's available is a database application like FileMaker. You can do something like I've used in the past because I didn't actually know how to use FileMaker at the time, which was TapForms. And that's that's really just manipulating that front end part of it. The database is happening behind the scenes with TapForms. And there's uh, there's MementoDB for Android. And there's, uh, God, I can think of a, a few of them off the top of my head. There's a bunch of form creation apps. TapForms, I mentioned because... It's commonly cited as the number one um, form creation application for iOS devices. It doesn't work on Android, um, and they've been around for a while. And uh, but Tapforms is pretty cheap. It's like nine bucks, I think, on the App Store, maybe a little more. And uh, you can create your own. You can create your own forms on Tab Forms, and that that information exports as a table of data. Okay, that you can do stuff with if you know how to do that. That's what I do. I use that table of data to bring that into um, a, a database if I need to, or uh, or just bring it into a Word document with this merge form that I created, and then it creates that Word document for me, which I can error check, and then send off as a PDF, and I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, fill all the requirements. Of course, one of the other ones is Codify, which we've talked about extensively. We've interviewed Michael Ashley on here uh, about Codify on the Architect podcast a long time ago and uh, talked about it pretty extensively. Codify, uh, I'll be honest, I don't really know what they're doing right now because they've taken most of their website down and they just want you to call them. I think they're doing like... Custom solutions for people, don't quote me on that because there's nothing saying what they're actually doing on the website, so I don't really know. Um, But I know what they were doing, which was basically leading in that direction where you would talk to them. They do this data audition, which you can apply for on their website at codify.com. And they will go over your system and find out what your particular needs are and then take their system and craft it to work with those needs. And you'll pay them, uh, you know, whatever that costs to to do that. Um, I don't know what the costs are. I don't know if there's ongoing costs or if it's a one and done. I don't know any of their structures right now because none of that's on their on their website anymore. So um,
0: so that's Codify. So I'm gonna chime in right here between these two uh these two kind of modes of FileMaker, Tap Forms, and Codify. FileMaker and Tapforms on the one side and codify on the other side is what I've seen a lot of in academic archaeology, where either you go with a very generic system for sure and uh and you try to craft something out of it that's gonna work for your particular project, uh, or you go with something that's that's more directed, you know, that's more closely targeted to the archeological community in this case, codify, which is, you know, very much targeted toward the archeological community um, and have somebody else make relatively minor adjustments to their system in order to work with your project. Uh, So those have been the two basic modalities, but, you know, I'm thinking uh, you said tap forms is about 10 bucks. Uh, If you're not collecting (laughs) data digitally yet, do yourself the favor and just download that and and play with it a bit. It, it might serve your needs fairly simply. If you find that uh, it's limited in some way, or you find that um, that you need to go a little beyond it, or you need a little extra assistance in getting up to speed. You know, you're only out ten bucks. What's your time worth? Then you can look up to mm-hmm. you know to other kinds of products that are going to be more crafted by somebody else for you, which is you know going to be more expensive, obviously, but. Uh, but again, what's your time worth? What is a normal archaeological project project cost? You know, I was talking to a friend of mine and he was telling me that his relatively minor excavations in Turkey cost a quarter million dollars a season. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So that was yeah. exactly my reaction. My God. Um so that, that ten dollars yeah. or the the thousand dollars that it might be to have somebody else, you know take that ten dollar product and make it work for you or i don't know what codifies price structure is like so i can't comment on that um yeah i don't either it is still just a fraction of that overall operating budget but again if you're collecting the data properly and you're collecting it as data digitally at the start it's going to make all that analysis and all that publication down the road so much simpler for you it's going to save you hundreds thousands of hours years down the road um, you know, maybe not in the CRM field where you're not dealing with things generally over the course of decades, but certainly mm-hmm. if you're doing it on a, a, on an academic project where you're going year after year, year after year, you know, group of undergrads after group of grad students, um, to, to the same place, uh, it, it's going to pay off down the way. Uh, you, you mm-hmm. owe it to yourself, you owe it to your project, you owe it to other archeologists and everybody else that's interested in that data, which frankly is why we're doing the work. Uh, to do it right from the get-go, so you know, take a look at that. Right.
1: Yeah, I wasn't really gonna mention this, but since you kind of brought it up and threw out some crazy wild numbers, um, I will mention it. <laughs> I've been kind of, kind of off and on for the last like. I guess, five or six years. Again, I don't really promote this very much as a service, but I just did one a, a month and a half ago for a company that found me online at DigTech. tech. Uh, what the hell's my website? DigTech tech dash com. Uh, I have a thing on there where you can, I, I, I build tap forms, forms for people. I have a lot of stuff already built that I'll sell you, but if you want some specific stuff and it's only, it's $75 an hour and I can do your standard one page form in that hour and create a word merge document for you. So I'll tell you what, if you want to go digital site recording, and you have no other options right now, and maybe you even bought some iPads, or you want to buy some iPads, or you can use them on your phone, your, your iOS device, or whatever, uh, 75 bucks for a form, like the one I built for this company just about a couple months ago, was a shovel testing form. And I already had a shovel testing form, but I customized it a little bit for them. They had some extra fields they wanted in there, and sold it to them. It was a straight $75, because it was one hour worth of work, and... I'll tell you what. If you've entered, if you've ever manually entered shovel testing data, then you know what it's like to shove a pencil in your eye because it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's all. <laughs> and there are no forms for shovel testing. I mean, people create forms to collect the data, but there's no like state forms for it. So it really just goes in as a table in your report. So you're actually just trying to collect data about shovel test. Why not start that way? Why not start with data? And that's what I created for them with tap forms was a way to just collect the data and now it's a simple one button export and their table's done. Their table is completely finished. They can drop that right in the report. So, and, uh, bucks I'm just going to say bad. this
0: for our listeners, uh, in case you're wondering, that was not a setup. I did not plan this <laughs> you out didn't know. with Chris beforehand that I was going to suggest doing this. But, but uh, take that as proof proof of concept. I mean, that it's it, it's really it's money well spent if you're thinking about your data collection upfront and early. And then also, it's still probably money well spent if you realize that you're a little at sea yeah. to get an expert to help you.
1: Okay, well let's uh, let's push through this last bit here real quick, um, so we can get to our app of the day. Uh, the last two, and we we the really is only one more thing to mention, which is WildNote. But we mentioned FileMaker. I wanted to stress uh, just because I don't, I, and maybe WildNote is the same thing, but I can't say that because I don't really know. But when we say FileMaker and then we say Codify, just keep in mind that when you get Codify, you're actually getting FileMaker as well, because FileMaker is like. It's like saying I use metal to build a car or something like that. You know, it's just the tool used to build Codify and code and, and it's the same thing with Tapforms. I could actually call the forms I create with Tapforms something else if I wanted to, and I'm using Tapforms as like my construction tool. Um, mm-hmm. That's what Codify is. So if you want to know what the back end of that is, you can't look at it because it's locked down. Um, I mean, he'll show you, but you can't if you just get it. You can't like see it. Um, because uh, that's kind of proprietary information as well is the way somebody used that co- to construct what you're seeing. But that's what Codify is. And I'm only mentioning that because I don't know what Wildmakers, WildNote is built on. And we've interviewed WildNote before on this podcast. So I'll try to link to that in the show notes. Um, but WildNote is another one of those. Um, it's another form creation service. And theirs is a little bit different where you create the forms essentially in their online uh, interface on a browser on your computer. Or you download the forms they already have. They have a number of forms that are ready to go, and you basically create your projects and things like that ahead of time. Um, now, this my information is five years, five months old, so things could have changed rapidly in the space. But take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, they were under heavy development when you talked about them. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, everything's fluctuating, so who knows what they're doing right now? But. Um, Essentially, it was their built-in forms or you could create your own with their own fields to build them all in and then basically sync your tablet to that online account that you have. And now you can go use those forms in the field. So it's kind of Mm a – the way I see it is it's kind of a hybrid between TapForms and and Codify essentially is it's it's doing that thing. The the biggest difference with this one, which is why I really like what they're doing because this is the solution I've been looking for I feel like my entire archaeological career – is it's something you can buy that's off the shelf. You can just if you already have the tablet, and I, I think they might even be into tablet rentals, but I'm not really sure. But if you already have the tablet, you basically just download the app, sign up for their service, pay a monthly fee that's ridiculously cheap right now, and and you're done. You know, you, you pay it for it by the month for as long as you need it. If you only need it for this month, then you use it and then you get rid of it. If you don't work over the winter, you don't have to pay for it over the winter. So oh, that's um, nice. Yeah, and you get all your data out, and you're and you're done. You know, you don't have to worry about it. But even if you were paying for it, like the, I, I want to say it was like twenty five or thirty bucks a month when I looked at it last. I don't know what it is now, but that was ridiculously cheap. When you're looking at saving, um, you know, potentially hundreds of hours, um, at least dozens of hours in the office, and if you calculate that out by the fifty to a hundred dollar an hour billable rate that it takes somebody to to type all that stuff up. I mean, you're saving a ton of money, and it's a it's a no brainer to pay that much money to uh, to get that kind of service. So, anyway, hopefully there will be more from Wild Note in the future, and uh, and hopefully Codify, uh, we can get more information from them in the future as well. I don't know if their website is being is under construction or what they're doing, but I, I look forward to to finding out more about what they're doing um, in the future. So, anyway, I think that's all we have time for, Paul. do You got anything? Any final remarks on? Databases or anything you want to mention before we close this out?
0: Yeah, the uh, the one last thing, and I'm not going to go into this because it's another full episode. Probably <laughs> is that uh, you know we've been talking about textual data here, right? Yeah. Numbers and text, and that's just one kind of data. You know, archaeologists, again, we're visual. We've been taking pictures and doing drawings of our data ever since archaeology has been archaeology. And we have all sorts of new ways of incorporating those as well as 3D and different kinds of sensor data on down the road, uh, different non-textual data into our reports, into our data collection routines. Uh, and I think that the, uh, the digital recording really opens up the doors to that in, in ways that hadn't been opened before. Uh, so, you know, I'm just going to leave that hanging out there is that, you know, think big.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and as you were saying that, I created another episode idea for us. And I think I actually could have created two or three um, photographs in the field. We could spend an entire episode talking about how to take and catalog your photographs. It might be the same thing as Codify or WildNote or TapForms or something like that. But they're treated a little differently, and there's reasons for that that you need to understand and be aware of um, because yep. some of those applications, when you take pictures in them versus importing pictures into them, will actually change your photograph in ways that you may not be aware and you may not appreciate. So... Um, you know, they change the metadata, basically, is what they do. Same thing like when you upload a photo to Facebook. It used to include the location information, and now it only includes that if you tell it to. Because in the early days of Facebook, pedophiles were just looking at the locations of photos and going to houses with children with photos. Um, and that actually happened. So, um, they no longer do that unless you tell it, I want this my location to be there. So... Anyway, that's a whole other topic. We're going to take a break real quick and then come back with our App of the Day segment. Um, I'm going to run an ad for my DigTech concierge service, which is basically, um, if you have all these questions, um, I I basically set this up so I could be on retainer um, for you, which I've noticed people don't want to just talk for a minute. They want to talk every time something new comes out. They want to talk every time something, you know some newfangled thing or they have an iOS update. They're not sure if they should do it. It'll break all their apps. They have a computer update. They're not sure if they should do it. I get phone calls and emails from people all the time. I figured I'd set up a yearly service where you basically hire me for the year and you can call me 24 hours a day. Well, maybe not 24 hours a day, but most of the time, uh, throughout the year. And then I can help you through your, your tech emergencies. So listen to this ad for my DigTech Tech concierge service. Um, especially with the new year starting up, you can start it off right with, uh, high quality tech information let me go through the pain of all that stuff so you don't have to so all right we'll be back in a minute with our app of the day segment hey podcast listeners do you find yourself wondering what the latest tablet or smartphone could do for your business wonder what gps to pair with your device just trying to figure out how to go digital in the field without breaking the bank and or making a bad investment or did you find a technology company to work with but just aren't sure the questions you need to ask during the initial conversation well you're not alone There are literally thousands of tech combinations out there, and it can be really tough finding the right one for your business and your workflow. My name is Chris Webster, and I've been working in CRM since 2005, and I've been a tech enthusiast my entire life. I spend my time trying to figure out how to make archaeology more efficient, both technologically and financially. No one is going to give you a big pile of money to do whatever you want with, so you have to make the most of what you have. The right gear can mean the difference between zero margins on that next project and an employee benefits package. That's where DigTech Concierge comes in. Let us be your technology guru. Whether you have just a few questions or want us on retainer 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we're here to help. With years of experience, tens of thousands of acres of survey done completely digitally, and many, many people trained. DigTech is your tech BFF, just waiting to guide you through this process now and through the inevitable changes to come. Should you hold on to those tablets or upgrade? What about the new operating system? Will it crash your apps, or can you go ahead and do it? We know the answers and can guide you to a profitable year go to www.digtech-llc.com/tech-concierge to book a consultation or book us for the year. The yearly retainer includes unlimited calls and support and company training on software and gear. That's digtech-llc.com/tech-concierge. And concierge is c-o-n-c-i-e-r-g-e. To get going and go digital today. Call us before you make any decisions. We've been there before. All right, welcome back to episode 69 of the Architect Podcast, and this is our App of the Day segment. Paul, what do you have for us today?
0: Okay. So I've got one that I just downloaded last week. Um, I was looking around to see if there's something that was interesting to me. And this one actually, um, I could see having some archaeological use. It's called sea level visual clinometer. Sea level there. It's a pun. S E E level. Mm-hmm. Uh, all one word. Uh, it's made by App Maker, which is a one man Sweden, uh, one man suite- uh, shop from Sweden. It's 99 cents. It's iOS only uh and basically, what it is is it's a uh it's a, a handheld sight level nice so um you know i i in the field i've actually used real sight levels you know physical with a spirit level inside and some mirrors and uh in a you know low level telescope um I used them in Yemen when I was doing my dissertation research to try to get a sense. The uh, where we were doing research, where I was doing my my survey, is a um, it's basically a canyon. And most of the sites are down on the bottom of the canyon, but uh, but there's some that are up on a ledge part way up. And so, you know, I'd go up and I would use it to see if the ledge across the way was at the same height or, you know, and I could also I'd take a protractor, <laughs> I mean, literally a little <laughs> plastic protractor and take that site level and measure, you know, uh, an angle from the when I was standing up on top of a site on that ledge down to the ground to get. Uh, an estimate of the height you know i 'd do a little bit of trick, pull out a pocket calculator because that 's what we had at the time we didn 't have the cell phones uh, and do a little bit of trick quickly to to find out what um, what the elevation was of the site above the uh the the canyon floor uh, so anyhow, so this is interesting to me in that it basically does the same stuff without having to pull out your calculator i 'm um, opening up the app right now it 's got a couple different modes it can you can use it to tell. For example, the angle, obviously, of uh, you know the, the 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 inclination or declination from horizontal, of you know whatever it is that you're measuring, which is how exactly uh-huh. I use the, uh, the the sight level when I was in the field, um, but you can also use it, you know. So you open it up, and there are. Know, clinometer, level, distance meter, and height meter. So basically, it's offering to help you do that little bit of mathematics that you would do on the, uh, that I used to do on the uh, handheld calculator. Uh, clinometer will just give me the angle. Um, level will give me something that's level. That's a, um, Basically, it's like a, a bullseye spirit level. You know, you can level, uh-huh. l- lay it on the surface. and It'll tell you if something's level or not. You know, that's not particularly useful to me, uh, not in an archaeological sense. Distance meter. So if I have something off in the distance that's a known height, I huh. can measure it here in the app, you know, and it uses the camera. And so I can measure across and I can you know, and put in, you know, freeze it and put in the... Uh, the height of the object, you know, say, I know my, my buddy is six foot tall and he's standing across there and I could, and I can use that then to get the distance between me and him. So that that's potentially useful. Um, Yeah and height meter does the opposite say i know the distance i can use it to get the height of something and so that would have been very much like i was using uh the the clemenometer in the field too you know if i want to know high high how high that little fortress was up on the scree slope of the uh, of the canyon walls um i can guesstimate it or i can maybe guesstimate it with a little more accuracy using a tool like this so um it's not the most intuitive interface uh it has a guide a, a um well that's what it's called here in the uh, on the menu a guide explain how to use it but mm-hmm. It's not a whole lot of help. <laughs> um so it's it's really one of those things I think that you have to uh to play with a bit just to see how you use it. It's not a very deep app. It doesn't try to do a whole million different things. It does again, you know, the clonometer, which is just basically measuring the angle between horizontal and whatever, up or down. Uh the level, which is just, you know, spirit level like any of the millions of other spirit levels you've seen on uh, on iOS devices. Uh, and then the distance meter and height meter, which are the opposite of each, of each other. But those two, again, are are potentially useful if you don't have other tools. You know, the last time I was in the field, actually, when I did the majority of my dissertation field work was in 99, and uh, I, I did have GPS, but it took a long time to lock on. And, um, and we still had the, um, uh, what was it, differential, what's it called? No, not differential. Um, selective mm. variability. Uh Selective, yeah. yeah, was that the name of it?
1: I don't know.
0: Something like that. Yeah, I'm I'm drawing a blank at the moment. But um, but basically what it meant was that the military was consciously degrading the signal in a random way. Oh, right. So so we couldn't uh, selective availability. That was it. Yeah. Uh, So the military was degrading the signal. So you know it was reasonably good for horizontal differences, but it was terrible for height. Um, Mm Hmm. You know, and even for horizontal, it wasn't all that great, but you know, if you averaged it over, if you averaged a measurement over a long time. So, anyhow, blah, blah, blah. So, I was using the, uh, the, the handheld, uh, clinometer because i didn't have any other good tools for t- for telling elevation nowadays i probably would was just even with the gps in my phone but um but if i were stuck in a situation that i didn't have good gps reception or i wanted another check on the gps you know for 99 cents it's worth a look i think
1: Hmm. okay yeah i could see um especially for the clinometer i mean a lot of us have this on our compass um but i could see in the age of digital information like we just talked uh, a lot of times when you're like shovel testing or something, you'll write off a shovel test for various reasons. One of those could be slope. Um, and if you wanted to add mm. a visual uh, thing, like if you're recording digitally, like in that shovel test form that I created for that company that I mentioned in the last segment, I always include on my forms because photographs are cheap these days. You can take them and not use them. You don't have to write down every single photograph in the photograph log like we do, you know, with like film and things like that. Um, but if you use this app uh, to show to prove visually that the slope is too high and that's why you're writing this off. You can screenshot that once you have that in the picture and then add that to the record. And then that can be like, oh, visually, yeah, that slope was too high. You know, I can see that rather than just writing it down. And if somebody wanted to verify that, they'd have to go to a topo map or something and find that. So, and and in similar vein, uh, a lot of times we talk about the slope on a site recording out here in Nevada. I mean, it's called the basin and range uh, system for a reason (laughs) because there's a lot of mountain (laughs) ranges. and uh, sometimes we want to we want to represent that, and showing just taking a picture doesn't often show you what the slope is because maybe it's not at the right angle to really get that perspective down. Um, but if you had something that's that's not only has that picture in the background but then has the visual clinometer on the front and then screenshot that by using yeah. uh, on an iPad. It's the, the home screenshot. button and the hold button. Yeah, do the screenshot and then... And this is pretty simple. It's got, uh, you know,
0: across the top it'll tell you the uh, the angle and then yeah. there's a little grid down the uh, reticle down the, the right-hand side and a bullseye in the middle. Nice. So you could absolutely take a, uh, you, you know, <laughs> level it out take a screenshot while you're aiming down that hill, up that hill, uh, and it'll tell you right at the top what the uh, what the uh, angle of the slope is. And, um, yeah. you know, you've got your documentation right there set.
1: That's pretty cool. Yeah, I like it. So... Okay, well, uh, that's pretty awesome. The link to that will be in the show notes. Um, so I've got one that's also 199 although I think I got it for free on like a deal sometime um, but because uh, I do not remember paying for this. However, and, and coincidentally enough, I don't know who's doing the who, why this is... is Paul and I didn't coordinate this, but mine is from like an independent app developer as well named Dennis Donner, and he's out of Germany. Um, He's just like makes apps. Like you go to the website page and it's basically his resume and you click on the app on that page and it takes you right back to the app store. So um, not a lot of information. However, the app I've got is called Pinpoints. And if you're looking for it on the app store, it's just Pinpoints, one word. And then it says Flight Driving Distance Calculator. Now, At first, I saw this and I'm like, what the hell would I use this for when I'm just going to use like maps or ways or something like that? And then I really saw the, I guess, uh, utility of it for the driving directions. For the flying one, I mean, any real pilot is going to use ForeFlight or something else that's a little more sophisticated. They're probably not going to use this for flying distance calculators unless you're really curious. So the the bird's eye distances from one point to the next, it will tell you that. but where I see this coming in handy is as serum archaeologists, we drive across the country a disturbingly high amount of times. Like one year, I drove all the way across the country from Florida to Seattle three times, um, and that was ridiculous. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and you know, often, often what I'll do so I can tell someone you know when I'm going to be there, uh, and this changes. You know, the longer you drive, the the more time you really have to add to the realistic estimation of time because you're going to stop for gas, you're going to stop for food, you know, whatever. Um, but I'll tell somebody if I'm driving a long distance, you know, well, it says I'll be there at this time. Um, Now, if it's going to be a multi-day trip, I might actually want to know the individual steps in between. So with pinpoints, you can enter in an entire route. And the really neat kind of thing that I noticed that this does that not anything else does, like if I enter in a whole route in, say, Waze, and I tell Waze or Apple Maps or Google Maps that I'm going from here to New York City and it's going to give me that distance. And then tomorrow when I wake up, I punch in, okay, now I'm going to be from this new here to New York city. And then the next day I'm going to do it again. And I have to do the route over again every single time. But if I know where I'm going to stay for the night and let's say I've got, you know, my, my, my route set up and I know where I'm going to stay, I can enter in all these major end of the day points and it will tell me the distance in time well, it'll tell me the distance and it'll show me the route for each one of those legs of the trip. And I can save that entire route as the whole thing. But the other really cool thing is each one of those legs, it says open in maps. So if I just go to that route and I know I'm on day two uh, because I know where the heck I'm at, I can just go to day two, click open in maps, and then it opens right up in Apple Maps the route that I'm going to drive for the day. I don't have to program in the whole thing. I just have today's route programmed in, and it's done automatically. And I think that's pretty slick. I haven't seen another mapping program that does that as efficiently. Now, I know with Google Maps, uh, you can set up a route and that's that has multiple points. But if you get out of that and you don't save it or you can't save it, then it's gone. With this, it's saved in a completely different application. And then when you're ready to use the map you just click on that segment and say okay i'm ready to drive this segment or walk this segment and it opens in apple maps and your route is still saved in uh in pinpoints with the total distance and all that stuff plus the individual route distances so um, I thought that was pretty neat. Otherwise, it's a pretty basic app. And that's the only utility I can see using it for is doing multi point routes that are probably multi day. So you don't have to program it in every day. And you can visually see every single day, what you have to do like today's going to be a 700 mile day or something like that, you know. <laughs> and you can just know that and go right to the map without programming it in and it's a uh, it can might save you some stress on what's usually stressful trip anyway so that's that's why i said it was pretty quick it's pretty basic um i'm not sure it's worth 199 if you drive a lot and you have multiple stops all the time um, then this might be something that's good information for you especially seer archaeologists like i said that are constantly traveling from one job to the next might take several days to get there this could be a good indication of what you have to do every day for driving so i've got a uh... I've got a question
0: for you though, about this, Uh, uh, really more closely tied to archaeology. Would this be useful in any way if you're walking transects?
1: Uh, Maybe, but I don't know if it's... um, Because you can zoom in on the map and drop a pin um, Mm -hmm. rather than punch in an address. So uh, it could... It could be useful in showing you, like, if you didn't have the GIS up for some reason or whatever, but you knew where the boundaries were of your survey area. Uh, maybe if you're just curious on your own. I couldn't see the company or crew chief really using this because somebody's going to have, you know, like a Trimble or something out there and they're going to know the exact numbers. But but if you just wanted to know for your own edification, like, okay, I'm going to start here and I think we're going to walk up to there and then back down to here and then you can set in those waypoints. Uh,
0: yeah, in a planning sense, not necessarily in a recording sense.
1: No, 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 for sure. Um, But it would sell you for your own peace of mind. Oh, crap. We're going to walk like nine miles today. And, you know, we're probably going to walk this much before lunch. And this is probably where we'll stop. You know, if you Mm -hmm. have those individual segments listed out, that'd be pretty cool, actually. So that's a good idea. Um, Yeah. So that's it for that. Um, That's all I have for that one. Uh, If you've got any app suggestions or things that you use, please let us know. Chris at uh, ArchaeologyPodcastNetwork.com or you can tweet at ARCPodNet or I'm at ArcheoWebby. And Paul, you are at?
0: I'm at, uh, let's see, my Twitter handle is at Lugal, L-U-G-A-L. And my email is Paul at
1: Lugal.com. There you go. So contact us. Let us know what you think about the apps we suggest and, and tell us about any apps that you love that you'd like to see us review on the App Store so other people can use it. Especially digital site recording apps and things that have to do with that. I'm curious to see what people are using out there and what their solutions are. So uh, I think that's all I have. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Uh, thanks, Chris. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. See you. Bye. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just 7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com/members for more info.